Last year, Paul Heyman was doing a show for Inside the Ropes when a fan kept yelling and calling out Chris Benoit as his favourite wrestler and his boy, quote-unquote. Paul Mm. eventually bites on this because he keeps hearing it and then he can't let it go. And then he says the following. You can admire his work, he being Chris Benoit, all you want, but I'll give you my take on it since you want to keep on yelling out. My boy. Three people died in that house that night. I don't care about CTE. Three people died in that house that night. Only one person had the choice behind it. The other two didn't have a choice to die. So if that's your boy, fuck you. As somebody with a medical background, we understand CTE a lot better these days than we did so many years beforehand. Some fans out there will immediately go to Benoit was entirely incapable of making a rational decision and then will blame the CTE. And and there's plenty of evidence to support that he did have CTE. Mm. Others will say, uh, I think the uh, expression was something like an 80-year-old Alzheimer's patient uh, uh, that his brain resembled. But then a lot of 80-year-old Alzheimer's patients don't kill either. So it's a very, very interesting uh, uh, there's no answer to it, but what is your opinion right. on Paul's response specifically there? Paul's brilliant on the mic. Uh, very bright guy. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a pretty well-known rule of the universe is like, don't go to the comedy club and try to razz the, uh, the comedian because they've done this 10,000 times and they're going to, they're going to bury your ass. Right. Uh, Paul, no different. Um, and, you know, my take on Paul saying that I agree with everything he said, uh, you know, Chris was a great guy that I knew when I knew him, uh, when I remember getting the phone call from Donna Seaman, uh, sweet lady, but good, good friend. Uh, she was involved in the WCW office and she was crying when I picked the phone up and that's how I'd learned the information. And I thought that can't be right. I mean, there's gotta be something more to this because, uh, I had seen Chris multiple times, including having a Bowie knife pulled on him and like put up in his face. And he always sat there with a little grin on his face. And he almost wanted to feel for a pulse, you know, like uh, nightly, uh, we would, the three of us, me, Chris and Dean would go out and without fail, almost every single night, some drunk moron in the bar would come over to the table and start flapping his gums. And, Chris and Dean both knew I was a hothead. And before I could react, Chris would jump right up, put his arm around the guy, and hey, buy you a drink and walk him away from the table. It, it, it may not have been every single night, but it was quite often that would happen. That's the Chris that I knew. And so, and I don't mean to detract in any way from what the, from the heinous acts that happened that night uh, or that weekend. But if if Chris would have called me five minutes before Donna called me, and said, hey, put your kid on a plane, you know, let him come down and visit Daniel. I'd had no reason to even think twice about it. Would have never even entered my brain. So, you know, when you have somebody in the audience, and I agree with, with Paul's comment, uh, you can admire his work because he was a phenomenal and ring worker, and he worked hard at it. Just the little things, an Irish whip. Watch how Chris Benoit did an Irish whip. Uh, watch how he, each time when he would do the flying headbutt, the perfectly stiff body and you know just i mean everything like much like brett because again i think learning up in that school initially you know that that style uh of, of those canadian wrestlers like the japanese wrestlers have hallmarks that they're phenomenal at the mexican wrestlers same thing the the canadian wrestlers and you can see these things in, in chris 
I don't think any of us that knew him best had ever seen anything that would have made us think that any of that was even possible. Now, all that said, and I, please don't anybody try to ascribe more to this than what the words coming out of my mouth. We've all been in marriages or relationships uh, where you're quite angry at each other for whatever reason. In my case, it was I left the underwear on the floor when I went to take a shower, uh, you know, stupid shit like that. But there are times in every relationship where you know, you're at each other's throats. Thankfully, the vast majority of those end up in each walking their a different way and either divorcing or going having a drink or smoke or whatever and come back and you start back over again. Uh, that was an aberration. And I, I, I agree with Paul that I don't prescribe it to just what well, it's CT. So free pass. And that's that this is a lot more convoluted of a topic. I mean, we're talking about three human beings dead. And like that to me is like an, Oh my effing God. Like this is like, as bad as it gets, right? I, you, unless four, I mean, like, that's the only way to make it worse. Uh, you know, it's, I'm heartbroken that in that moment or those moments that weekend, uh, as many people as Chris knew and was close with that, he didn't feel that he could pick a phone up and talk to somebody, walk outside and punch a brick wall, uh, run this car into a tree, whatever, to let that tension out someplace else, uh, you know, for anybody that's been in a marriage uh, or a close relationship like that, we've all had the, the time where you want to just, just react. And I think the CT probably is responsible for that. I don't buy that. He was just this blank drone walking through his house, killing his wife and his kid and then himself and, and doing all these things. But there is the, the, the steroid usage that, you know, when people hear the phrase roid rage, uh, I'd seen it quite often in my business. Uh, typically, roid rage is you do, you, you flip out over the dumbest of stuff for two or three or four minutes. Then you walk away almost embarrassed that you lost your temper like that and uh, over something that, that trivial. So, again, hopefully not having CTE. I think it'd be impossible for me to put myself into that mindset. But I think once that bottle started tipping, like once that temper started rolling, um, the CT probably made it less capable for him to pull back on that. And I, I have no doubt that he loved Daniel unconditionally. Uh, it, it's foreign to me because I, I, I cannot imagine in any way, shape or form ever hurting my boys. Uh, and the Chris that I knew, like I described earlier, I, I, you can see an incongruity there. There's something, those two trains are passing in the night. Those two things don't match up. So clearly something was off. Uh, if you'd have told me Chris would have killed his dog, I'd have been shocked by that, let alone his wife and, and his son. Uh, I think D. Malenko put it best uh, when he said, anybody that knew what happened in that room is gone or in that house is gone. And so we're always going to be left to guess. Uh, it's it breaks my heart that that's you know a stain on Chris's legacy because he was such a great wrestler. But uh, everything Paul said was spot on. It's one thing for a fan to 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 be able to separate these things and say, yeah, but he's a great wrestler. Yeah, he was. And unfortunately, in life, everything is like this. Like I say, mm -hmm. the vast majority of life takes place in that gray area between the black and white. And, you, you know, uh, every one of us is capable of making a mistake. Uh, you know, this week there's this 
awful video of these young kids, 17 years old, mowing this guy down and killing him and then laughing about it. Uh, you know, what are we creating in society? I, I think with Chris, like the, again, the Chris that I knew couldn't imagine it. And in hindsight, now I have this image in my head also of this horrible thing happening. And Paul, again, his, his comment, you know, two people didn't have a choice in that. And, you know, if you want to offer yourself, by all, please call somebody, you know, reach out to somebody if you ever had that, that feeling. But if your plan is to go out and being so mad, like the, the school shooter in Tennessee, right? Apparently angry because somebody in that school allegedly did something to her or him, you know, depending. Um, then go and shoot that guy. Don't go and shoot all these innocent kids and teachers. Uh, but again, I think you see the the, the the disconnect in the human brain. To me, the idea of killing anybody for any reason seems pretty like would wreck me. Like even if it was by accident, if I wrecked the car and you know somebody else died in the other car, that would just destroy me. So the idea of saying I'm just going to go out and do it to do it, um, or you know get so angry that I'm going to kill my kid or or boys or my ex wife, uh, you know it's uh, it, it is so hard for us that knew Chris. To, to put those things together. But in this isolated moment, like first of all, Paul's a brilliant on the microphone, right? So he's, he's not going to let some heckler throw him off what he's got to do. And because it's so obvious what's being done, he has to address it. And he, he addressed it the only way he could publicly. If Paul would have said, and I'm probably sure that you're going to probably get some people writing in, Hey, Shane shouldn't have said that. Uh, I'm giving my honest opinion on things. None of it should have happened. Uh, but it did. And we know human beings do awful things and sometimes inexplicably. And, you know, for the people left behind, I can only imagine the family. Uh, but for those of us that knew him, it's, it's, it just doesn't fit. You know, it would be like, you know, Moose as big and gregarious as he is. I'd be like saying, Hey, did you hear Moose killed his wife and daughters today? I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? And what? It just doesn't, you know, you can't see it. The same with Chris, and I'm not giving a buy or anything to it. It's just one of those mysteries that's going to forever fester that there's never going to be a conclusion to. Paul handled that the only way he could handle it, and deftly at that. Uh, what do you say to it? You know, yeah, Chris was a great wrestler, hooray, but then there's this nine million pound elephant in the room, right? <laughs> it's uh, uh, you know, but, but kudos to Paul, and I, I don't think that anything he said there was necessarily degrading to Chris's career. Like hey, he was addressing what happened and uh, really in front of an audience and being televised uh, recorded. What could you say? You know, I mean, that's uh, I don't think you could handle that any, any better than he did. Uh, a plus from, 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 from the franchise. I, uh, no, I appreciate that you've given a nuanced answer because it's it deserves a nuanced answer, but there's so many people out there who will say, no, it was definitely the CTE, or no, it was definitely this, or definitely that. And it's like, guess what? Yeah. Life just isn't that, especially in Amen. a situation like this, life just doesn't, or an answer just doesn't fit nicely, neatly into a little box, and then yeah. you can say that's the definite reason. So I uh, always appreciate a nuanced answer to it. Uh, but, we will move but which on. is what the... It's what the human brain wants, right? We want exactly. it to be a nice, neat answer with a bow on it. Uh, yeah. So it's just uh, an aberration and a horrific thing and forever question mark. We should. By the way, I just like a little, uh, I keep stepping on you. For the people that, that are saying this was CT and that's it, and blah, you know, it's, a, it's a password. I'd be curious how many of them have CTE? How many of them have been around people with CTE? Uh, 
you know, I, I've read an awful lot about it. Um, and there are times I look at it and like, when I can't find my car keys and they're like, Oh shit, chair shots, you know, and then, or somebody's name. The fact of the matter is by the time you hit the ripe old age of 39, like I am, is that uh, you got a lot of bullshit up there, a lot of junk that's just sort of floating around, you know, the, the, the bills due tomorrow or whatever. Um, yeah, it's uh, I, I would ask anybody out there just to please take a step back from it and understand that three human beings are gone. Uh, again, two without their consent or, or desire and just a horrific, horrific chapter in our business that should never happen yet it does happen so hopefully i I pray for everybody out there that it doesn't happen to them or their families terry started doing the moonsaults at the time still uh you know around this time still a rarity in the united states because i I think there's an argument of whether you know chavo guerrero senior invented it or danny that's that's for a different show anyway then he went on to become the hardcore legend as we know uh he was always hardcore for his time period i think he was always a brawly you know in the in the 60s and 70s to to combat dory's as uh, dr tom would say the liquid valium of uh dory funk uh senior's (laughs) style and uh in terry uh terry in the 1990s he would once again be on sort of the cusp of the um uh forefront of thinking and become a hardcore wrestler, as we know today, an extreme wrestler, a deathmatch wrestler, going mm. to uh, Frontier Martial Arts in the early 1990s, and then later Victor Quinones's IWA Japan. Uh, I think um, 1993 FMW he uh, debuted for. Um, let me just have a look what I've written here. I'm sorry, I've written quite a lot of this quite a while ago, so no, I'm sort of reading this great. for a while. Uh, so he would have an infamous series, you know, Deathmatch with Mick Foley, of course, including Exploding Rings, Barbed Wire, C4, Boards, Fire, and more. Why did Terry do all this? All this Deathmatch stuff? Because, as we, as I've said, and you've said, and you'll know, obviously, far better than I ever will, about how Terry was constantly at the forefront of... Uh, he was a modern wrestler in a middle-aged crazy man's body. Yeah. But did he really need to do the Deathmatch stuff? I, I, I know, I, you know, Terry's legacy is his legacy. It's, it's written in, in, in granite, right? I mean, he's, he's Terry Funk and always will be, but I think at that point you know, Terry, you know, in the, in the business, I think a lot of fans out there uh, throw the phrase around the most retired man in wrestling, right? He's yeah, retired yeah. 150 that, times. That will be coming um, up later. I assure you don't worry about that. <laughs> you know, so he, I, I think what it is ultimately is, is, and I get it now. He, he just loved the business. He loved the energy in the buildings. And I saw this in a different way from Dominic when I started taking Dominic on the road with me at the end there. Uh, you know, they, Dominic had reached the point where he thought, well, nobody's going to know me, right? I haven't been on TV for 20 years and, you know, all these kids and all that kind of thing. Are you kidding me? You know, you're Dominic Danucci, right? So the very first time I take him out to a convention, we're sitting in a, the first guy comes to the table is, oh man, franchise. Oh my God, Dominic! And he like walked right away from me. Right? He just totally ignored me. And I think Terry Funk, in his way, just so adored the business. Just it was part of his DNA. Um, that for I'm, I'm sure Dutch will tell you the same thing. Any, any of the boys you talk to, uh, this is a powerful opiate. I mean, way more powerful than oxycontin. All the rest. when you get it in your blood, it is really, really hard to walk away from it. And you know, I, I think, you know, like my litmus test of coming back was as long as I'm having fun. The problem is I'll always have fun doing this, right? I, I just love doing it. And and I think a lot of that bled off on me from Dominic and from Terry and guys like that, that you'd see them like where most people would say, like, maybe they're overstaying their welcome, but 
again, I don't think in any of those matches you go out and watch Terry in the death matches or in ECW or anything in the latter part. Uh, everybody was aware that he could still go. And I think in large part, just, it was career, but the match he had with uh, Brett at, you know, at his other retirement match in Amarillo, like, that was just a, a classic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you talk about a curtain seller. We were all you know, just like mesmerized watching this guy go because Brett at that time is like, you know, the pinnacle of the industry. We will. And, um, uh, uh, I do apologize for putting in that. We will be getting to the Bret Hart thing. We will be getting to the Bret Hart thing. I assure you, uh, because you were also on that card. Uh, before we yep. wander off the death match thing, you must have seen some of them. I don't know if you saw them on tape, or I mean, you've seen some extreme stuff in ECW, which we will get to a little later as well. Yep. But of all the things that Terry did, uh, some of them you very much can argue unnecessarily because it wouldn't have made him any yeah. more or less over. What was the most extreme thing you saw him do? Most extreme thing was an XPW. Um, we, you know, there was an, uh, first of all, there was a huge amount of uh, heat between XPW and ECW. Mm-hmm. Very similar, you know, vein. Uh, I think, you know, ECW had far transcended what XPW would do. Uh, my When I went into book there, my in- intention was to do this slow veering off of what they were doing and take it more into the ECW vein because it really was the same fans. And, uh, you know, some crossovers, but, uh, you know, I think we could have easily gotten ECW fans on board and, and kept the ones from XPW. Uh, we were working, I had the title and the way I had it booked out was, I think the first show was in, in, in LA. The second show was in Philly. The third show was in LA. And then when we came back to Philly would be the, the title drop back to funk. And the first match in Philly, now I had worked with Terry at this point hundreds of times and had never, ever had to go over a finish twice with Terry, not a single time till this night. Um, earlier in the day, I'm at the, uh, I had, when I uh, book, I take like an hour or two in the morning, afternoon, early afternoon, just to let my brain just sort of decompress before I get to the building and take it all on. Now, I've, I've got all my paperwork done. I've got all the matches lined up and what I want to do with each of them. But I just, just got to go like, like disconnect for an hour or two. And I'm in the tanning bed and I keep hearing my phone ring. When I finally get out, I, I keep ignoring it. But it literally dozens of times it rings. So I finally get out of the tanning bed thinking, like, is something wrong at home? You know, somebody's trying to get home. And I see it's, it's Rob Black. So I put the phone down. I finish my tan. And I get out and I call Rob. And he says, uh, you got to get down here right away. We, I was staying at the Marriott at the airport, which I always stayed at. They were staying at the Days Inn down uh, near the uh, the ECW arena. And uh, I had to go back and shower and you know get to the building. So I go, he's telling me there's some problem with Terry. So sweaty and greasy, I jump, put my clothes on. My driver drives me down. I walk in. Rob is in the lobby. And he said, Terry's in the room, whatever, whatever. And I told my driver, my buddy Damien, I said, give me 10 minutes and then come and get me. So uh, I go up to the room. Now I'm expecting Terry like to be, hey, what the hell's going on? Because like the way Rob is portending this to me, and he goes, well, Shane Douglas, what the hell are you doing here? It's just like Terry. And we go and we start talking for a few minutes. And I finally said, uh, Terry, is there a problem for tonight? Because I, I got to get back and get showered and everything. He goes, well, no, no, I just had a, an idea for a finish. So okay, let me hear it. And he wants to win the title that night. I said, uh, the plan is next time back, you know, we're going to do this, do that to where my, my thinking and booking, it was the fans once after three matches, they're going to figure 
Shane's the champion, ain't dropping the belt. And when they least expect it, um, finally get it. And back in the same building. So he's telling me the spot he wants to do with Lizzie Borden, who was my valet at the time, uh, that he wanted to pull her into the ring. She had like a cheerleader outfit on, pull her panties off, spank her bare ass. And I, I laughed. It was a great spot, right? ECW, that would have been perfect. The problem was we're still getting this XPW, ECW head-to-head stuff. And I said, oh, I love it, uh, but let's save it. You know, we got to try to undo some of that tension between before we get to that. And that pretty much wrapped it up. Uh, but he kept, you know, asking me about that. But wouldn't it be great if we he kept bringing it up like in a nonchalant way like that. Finally, Damien came up. We leave. We go back, get to the building, and we sit down and we come up with a finish. And 20 minutes later, Terry comes up and goes, well, what was that finish again? I give it to him again. 10, 15 minutes later, again. It's been on all day. Uh, well, what was that finish? What was that finish again? And I'm getting nervous. I'm thinking like, is, like he's starting to lose it. He's never asked me more than once at this point. And so we had a couple setups. Uh, uh, one was a camera, uh, an actual camera that didn't work. And they had been out there all night, like they're shooting the show. It had a piece of red tape or orange tape on the side of it. So we knew which one it was. And we go down to the ring. Now, understand before this, Terry was always snug in the ring, um, especially when he would do that windmill on that bone at the base of your neck. Uh, that was no fun. Uh, but Terry was never a potato thrower. And uh, we get down for the first 10, 15 minutes of the match. It's all Terry. I'm just rubber balling for Terry. And we go out on the floor, and he throws my head the post, the, the you know, the, the metal post that held the roof up right at the end of the entrance he threw me into that but he like literally ran my face into it like gave me no control of it hard weighed me so i gave him the office and i said that's one and, you know sort of an inside joke we then fight over towards the camera and he takes the camera instead of hitting me with the side of the camera the flat part of the camera hits me with the point of the camera and hard weighs me a second time i gave him the office again twice the double squeeze and i said that's two don't get the three and we then fought out. I would typically do this. I did it in my match with Raven. I did it in my match with Taz. Uh, we would fight out the back door up the street and come back in. And you would get this amazing boom explosion with the, uh, uh, with the audience. So we go out the back door. Now understand this is where the fans have been lined up all day. And so there's beer bottles and cigarette butts and junk all laying around out here. And my hand was in a cast. I'd broken my thumb. And Terry picks up this bottle full of backwash, like piss and spit. And he's hitting it against the brick wall. It's going, tink, tink, tink. And the thing won't break. And I'm thinking, I'm already cut open twice. Like, I'm, 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 my skin's open. And I'm thinking, what the? Finally, he swings wild and it explodes. And he turns around. And all I can see is like shards of glass sticking out of his hand. And he grabs me. I'm thinking, what the hell is he going to do? With and he gouges. In, I smacked it out of his hand with my cast and I said, cut the fucking shit, Terry. And I walked up the, the street, fully expecting him to be with me. You know, I'm doing the, the drunk cell up the street and I get to the front corner of the ECW arena. I turn around and I'm by myself. The camera, the ref, everybody's still at the back of the building. And Finnegan comes running up the referee and he goes, man, you better get back here. You better get back here right away. I said, why? He said, Terry's cut. He's cut bad. 
I'm thinking, how'd he get cut? Like I hadn't done anything to him yet. So I go back there and he's holding his arm. He's going, you stupid son of a bitch. What the fuck have you done? He's screaming at me. So I pound on the door because it's pitch black out here. The door opens and I throw him in fully expecting him. There's two steps there to like stagger dance up them. I'm going to, I got to get him. First of all, I got to get to see like how bad he's cut. And secondly, I got to get him back to the ring or get the match stopped, whatever we're going to do. And when I throw him, he lays down the stairs. So the stairs are only about this wide. So I'm like sort of staggering, like walking up over him. And I can see his arms. He is cut from here to here, a straight line, a scalpel. And it is laid open like, like this. It's I can see his, but it's not bleeding. That's the weird part. It's not bleeding. I had a little trickle of blood here and there, but I could see his veins and his arteries and his muscles pulsating. And, you know, I just accepted medical school right before this. And I'm thinking, holy shit, we got to get him out of here. Like that thing is laid wide open and this building is filthy. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm heading back to the ring and I'm, I'm saying, we got to let's stop the match, stop the match. And he's going, no, damn it. No, damn it. And he's like, he's cussing me out the whole way. I throw him over the railing and I'm like in my head, like stop the match, finish the match. Get, like I'm panicking because of his arm. And as I'm climbing over, uh, one of the Atlas guys was right near me, but I didn't see any fans close by. And as I'm climbing over, I feel like a real hard kick up near my balls. And I'm thinking, like, did the fans just try to kick me? I look around, I see the Atlas guy and Terry walking away. And I'm thinking, like, did he just try to kick me in the balls? Like, why would he do that? You know, as I'm prone coming over the railing. So I get back, he rolls in post left, I roll in post right. And he starts, he grabs me and he starts throwing those famous Terry Funk uh, uh, stiffies. And like every second or third one was pretty live. And so I couldn't tell, like, is he trying to throw a working punch and can't because he's cut so badly? Or is he trying to throw a potato and he can't because he's cut so badly? So I took a bump to feed for a kick. And I thought, if he taters me with a kick, I'm going to take him down and break his leg. And because at this point, I think he's gone rogue, right? So he goes down, he kicks me three or four times, perfect kicks. So I lay there selling, you know, bleeding already. And I look up, no Terry. Help me go. He's gone over outside the ring. He grabs Lizzie, pulls Lizzie in, and I'm screaming, no, no, no. He reaches up, pulls them off, and, and I was pissed. And you can hear some of the things, like rumbling, you know, and, uh, I go over to get him and he turns around and he starts throwing punches and he puts the panties over my head and I'm screaming at him, like cut this shit. Now let's get the match home. And, uh, we finished the match. And of course, Lizzie and I, I take off first cause I'm pissed and Lizzie comes with me. But the first thing I said in the dressing room, this can be verified by everybody in the dressing room. I walk in the door and I said, I need a clean towel. I need a clean towel for Terry. And Vic Grimes reaches in his bag and he throws it across through him and I grab it and I turn and Terry's coming in and I'm thinking of his arm. There's nothing else in my, I'm mad about the panties. I'm mad about this and I'm mad about that. I'm concerned because he's cut badly and uh, I haven't had time to assess like how did he get cut or anything. That was irrelevant. He, he's hurt. So I turn around with a towel like this and he comes from back behind and smacks me right on the ear hard and i looked back at him i said uh terry you better cut the shit and uh he reaches back and smacks me a second time i said throw another one i'm gonna whoop your ass 
I'm confused. I'm, I'm concerned about him. Now I'm confused. Like, where are these taters coming from? And he thinks about it for a second and he brings his hand back and he starts to swing. And I threw with the cast aiming right for his temple. I, I was aiming to hurt him as I did. Uh, Cody Michaels stepped in and pushed Lizzie Borden. And so I had to throw wide to not hit them. Now Atlas is grabbing me. Everybody's pulling us apart, pulling him across the room. And now they've built a wall uh, between me and Terry. And Terry is sitting over against the wall talking uh, to the doctor, but he's yelling out, Shane Douglas stabbed me. Shane Douglas stabbed me. Now in this dressing room, you've got a bunch of guys from XPW that have no idea about me. And the legend and the aura that we built around that character, throwing Gary down with the head, you know, the, the halo and everything. I think a lot of those guys weren't quite sure how to take me. And, you know, very different people dressing room and, and, and ring. Uh, but he keeps saying this. So I finally get through and I'm telling him to stand up. He won't stand up. So I grab his head and I slammed his head in the wall. I said, stand the fuck up. And, he, and the doctor said to me, touch my patient again. I'll have you arrested. Now the security circle and circles me and pushes me back and the entire dressing room's mouths are hanging open and except rob black rob black thinks that this is some kind of an inside angle that we're playing and i'm livid at this point i had literally lost my mind now over the fact that he's telling everybody i stabbed him and the fact that he's hurt and the fact that he did the panty spot and the fact that the match went a different way. Uh, there were just so many things. It was all swirling in my head. And even the next day at the airport, Rob Black's going, come on, come on, man, come on. And I kept telling him, dude, I swear to you on my kid. I swear to you on my wife. I swear to you on my mother and father. There's no angle going on here. Candido would later call me and say, do you think Terry was working an inside angle? Most likely. Yeah. Uh, the problem with that was a, I had never, ever once dropped the ball with Terry, never failed to, to, to live up to anything we had done of anybody in that building that Terry wouldn't have had to pull an inside angle with you. You typically do that when you're working with a, like a greener kid or something, somebody that's not quite sure. And you don't think their reaction is going to be what you need to get. Uh, and it's supposed to be extremely rarely used. And so that at, at the moment hearing that didn't sit, sit to me, um, it didn't make sense uh, that he would have had to try to do that with me. But then later when he started working with Jasmine St. Clair's uh, promoter, I think he was still working with him at this time in Pennsylvania, you had a bond. Uh, you had to have a bond with the state, a license and bond. It was a $5,000 bond. You weren't allowed to, to gig. And if you gigged, they would take your $5,000 bond. I mean, essentially you're losing five grand and in hindsight my guess would be is that what it was like a he was going to stop us from running we were we had sold the building out uh every time we were there and uh same thing in la you know we were starting to roll up my guess is that was terry's business way of sort of you know trying to get rid of xpw and and uh which you know, again, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to see if he'd ever spoken publicly on, uh, you know, commented on that. I have no idea. I've never heard any comment on it. Uh, but it was so left field to me from everything that we had done successfully in ECW. And then to do this, and it took that whole match, like we were on par to, to deliver, a, you know, a classic in that arena, a classic that they would have expected from the, the franchise and Terry Funk. And then suddenly it just went off, veered off into this wild, crazy thing. And for a long time after that, 
I think for the duration of my booking in XPW, there were especially younger kids were like really like you know, if I go to talk to them about like, hey, okay, this is what I need to do tonight. There would be this like, um, okay, yeah, like there was like this trepidation there, and uh, yeah, and and that was hard to overcome with them. I mean, ultimately, you know, it, it, that would fold in on itself based on things that that, that they had done in, in XPW, the XPW side of the equation. Um, but with Terry, Terry and I didn't speak. I think the first time I spoke to him after that was for the uh, Hardcore Homecoming in 2005, and. Uh, you know, I knew that that Candido was still tight with him, and I knew that uh, that Mick was tight with him. And I would say to them, I would see him, tell Terry to give me a call. I wasn't going to call him. You know, that was that the, the onus was on his side of it. And uh, uh, and when we when we did meet that night in the arena, um, what uh, four or five years later, uh, he he just sort of put put it on the table as oh, let's just put that shit behind us and and go on. So let's not talk about that and just move on. So I never really had any resolution from Terry on that. Uh, I, you know, for me, I knew that in doing that show, you know, the, the performer in me wanted to say, fuck Terry Funk, you know, but the, if you're going to have a hardcore homecoming, you must have Terry Funk there. Right. I mean, that's a necessity. And uh, thankfully we did. And, you know, I had it there and, and, and he and I never spoke again past that uh, about that incident. Uh, you know, so again, I'd be curious to see like if he ever made any public comments on it. And uh, if so, what those were. Well, everybody, if you can let us know, if you find anything, then send it into the show. I don't know how you're going to send it into the show. I haven't given you an email or anything, but um, <laughs> we'll figure that out. Just very, very quickly, Shane, I just want to pick up one thing. He had a great big cut on his arm. Uh, you, from you telling the story, it seemed like it came from the bottle, and he did it to hmm. himself. Is that what you're yes. presuming? Yes. Uh, there was a camera that later caught it, Smiley, who was the editor at XPW would call me up later, weeks later, and say, I got something to show you. And as I take the gouge from the bottle and smack it out of his hand and start walking away, you see very quickly as he's turning, it's a real quick sliver. Um, that's, one, again, I mean, like, man, talk about commitment to the art. Um that was not, you know, a little gig or or whatever. I mean, to to cut yourself, especially in a building this filthy like mm -hmm. that, that could have easily become infected, could have easily lost that arm based on that. You know, and, and I look back and I think a lot of this, like in hindsight, you know, for anybody, it's, you know, most of us had a family member or somebody we know that's you've seen like these weird things that suddenly they're doing stuff that these people would never do. Um, I wonder in hindsight, if Terry wasn't starting to have some symptoms early on of the dementia, um, you know, he didn't seem that way in any way in, in talking with him, but this was so left field from him. I mean, like I, I, I had, you know, Terry again was committed to his art, but I could not imagine cutting yourself that that severely. I mean, that was a major, major cut. And again, in that, <laughs> the stories are renowned. The building had raw sewage coming out of the bathrooms, uh, cockroaches and rats and filth everywhere. Uh, uh, laid open like that, uh, you know, pick up a bacterial infection, pick up something out of that sewage uh, that's probably all through that building, people tromps and through it. And, you know, God knows where the, those bugs are all laying. Um, 
it, it could have been catastrophic and it could have been very incredibly damaging to XPW. You know, to lose a five thousand dollar bond could have, you know, it would have stopped us running Pennsylvania for sure. So uh, there, there's a lot of those things to it. Uh, again, if anybody out there has heard any of Terry's comments publicly on it, I'd be very interested because I've never, ever heard. And, and and we just got back on track. You know, we just sort of like like Terry asked, put it in a box, left it behind and moved on. And I I think in my head, I'd always assumed that at some point, like we have that discussion. And then it just reached a point where so many years after you think like, ah, why bring it up? You know, you're not going to get any kind of real resolution to it anyway. So uh, just one of those, it's the only negative story I can ever tell about Terry. Um, because to this day, I don't know. And uh, like I said, there were a lot of things hinging on that, uh, that could have been catastrophic to XPW, which wouldn't have been fair to the guys. It wouldn't have been fair to the fans. And I think by that, after that first show in Philadelphia, we had started to win some of those fans back over to forget about the whole confrontation and uh, with XPW. And, uh, you know, I was in large part mimicking what Paul had done in ECW early on with the Salvatore Belomos and Stan Hansen's and Jimmy Snook as great names, but it was clear we had to like sort of segue past them and introduce this new generation of wrestler. And the same thing uh, would have been, there were a handful of guys, chaos being one of them, as I recall, um, uh, Pogo, uh, you know, as limited as he was, I think had like a nine one one feel about him. Uh, but it, we were Cody Michaels and I were in the process of segueing to finding that really good core of, of wrestlers that would, would take XPW in that different trajectory. And that sort of marred all of that. When I interviewed Eric Bischoff, he said very much the same thing. He said one of the real problems with TNA was the back office staff and just the, the, the cross wires and just some people who he just said should never have been there. But he didn't give any names, so I can't really. <laughs> uh, sim similarly, with uh, I want to bring up one thing with Dutch just to follow up. And one thing he said that was really frustrating to book TNA with is that some of the talent eventually realized that instead of going to Dutch or Jim Cornette or Vince Russo or Terry Taylor or whoever, they could go to Dixie. And then all of a sudden, yeah. Dixie would turn and was like, hey, I've got this great idea. Why don't we push so-and-so? And then, yes. because it's Dixie coming from Dixie now, uh, the booking committee then has to work that into the uh, storyline. But um, we'll leave that for there because... Uh, well, there, there, oh. there is one tagline, if I can throw it. I won't use names. Okay. But I've had three wrestlers since I was there and left come to me at different times and say that they were put in very uncomfortable situations with Dixie. And can't, uh, all I can tell you is this was told to me by three different people at three different times, independently of each other. Uh, I had never seen that. Uh, I had never even heard any of that when I was there. Uh, you know, but I, I sort of kept to myself. You know, We'd have the production meeting the night before in Jeff's suite. And that would be about the only time you'd see or hear like any real interaction with anybody. And after that, people would either like stay there and party or go off their way. I like being by myself. And so I'd be down in my room watching HBO or ESPN. And uh, then we would go to the building and we'd have these meetings where sort of like playing off of what was decided last night, but there might be a change here or there. I remember one time there was an interaction and this is why I wouldn't open my mouth in the production meetings. Uh, there was a, a match with AJ Styles. And the argument was, like, let's send him out first. 
And I thought, well, he's the bigger star in this match and we're putting him over. So let the heel go first and get some heat. And then said, well, Terry, Tanner and I sit right next to each other. And most times we'd play tic-tac-toe on there with a paper on the table. X, oh, you know, that kind of thing. And Terry, you know, likes to put his two cents in and he raised it and he said, I think we should send the heel first. And, uh, Jeff was sitting at the head of the table and he went, like, he's looking at the paper and thinking it through. And he goes, no, no, let's leave it like it is. And from now on, why don't you keep your, did he say fucking, uh, uh opinion or your stupid opinion, something like that to yourself. And I'm kicking him under the table. Like, dude, like he got to respond to that. Like, you can't just let him say that. And, uh, and Terry didn't, um, and, and much to my chagrin after that, Terry would become very much a political beast after that. Uh, you know, I'd confided some things and I'm like, this is what my marriage is going south and everything. And you no, know, I thought I'd known Terry for years at this point and confided some things into Terry that I later found out, like went into the whole decision of like letting me go. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, mixed feelings with, with, with TNA because I honestly believe that TNA had, you know, money's the biggest issue with wrestling. It's an incredibly expensive endeavor to start. So when you have that and you have the talent and you have the interest of the fans, it's like I said earlier, it's a sin that you can't make that work. Right. And uh, it's just like every time you get to a tape, like when Dusty was there, there were brief flickers of, Hey, we're getting a chugging in the right direction. And, you know, then he would be gone and then Russo would be back for the second or third or fourth time. And then Bischoff would be there. And then there was this, it just had so much of a WCW all over again, feel to it. And, uh, it's, uh, I, I think one of those episodes in wrestling history that, you know, those of us in the business, whether it be at the production meetings or in the ring or the dressing room, sitting there and scratching our head and going like, God, like we should all still be working for WCW technically. Mm-hmm. All he's had to do is the right thing. That should have just always chugged along. And uh, you know, just those things that happen. You look and the fact that you still see those things happening today in the business. You go, okay, like is nobody paying attention to the history? Is nobody watching? You know, we just saw I know, I know this has nothing to do with the question, but we just saw Fox jettison, right? And and what was an NBC Universal picked it up. Uh and Fox's publicly stated reason was we expected for all this money, we were going to get this many viewers per week. We never came close to it. Uh, so this deal a lot smaller than the original one. I would guess that people in on the inside, even though it's at a billion dollar deal are going, yeah, but it's half as much as the last one. And where are we going to be at the end of this contract? You know, cause it's, it's the arc of that is traje- tra- you know, making the wrong trajectory. So, uh, all of these things, there's ample history to in companies like ECW and companies like TNA. It's there in the record books. Just pay attention to it and do something different. Apparently, that's impossible. It's uh, well, you know, the definition of madness is doing the same thing and uh, <laughs> yep. expecting a different result. You said something um, at the beginning of when you were talking about uh, in the last five minutes or so. And he said, oh, droning, three, "Droning on." <laughs> no, three wrestlers came to you and said the same thing that they uh, that Dixie Carter put them in an uncomfortable position. Mm, I don't think I said Dixie. I said we're put in uncomfortable I'm sorry. situations. I'm sorry. Um, 
Okay, so exactly what did you say? Because I've already misquoted you there. And exactly what uh, do you mean? I, I, three three wrestlers at different times, independently of each other, had come to me and told me that they were put into very uncomfortable situations, like situations that were tantamount to sexual harassment. You know, if you if you don't have a choice in the decision of this, I'll do this or I'll do that or I won't do this or do that. Uh, to me, that's the very definition of sexual harassment my power my job i can derail yours if you don't do this for me um and these are all you know, male so the fans can male yes yes so the fans are, yeah and there's a, again a lot of information out there on this the fans can put those pieces together as they want goldberg bill goldberg calls vince mcmahon naughty naughty word so i'm going to uh, give you the full quotes and you tell me it seems quite tame when I read it out in this sense, but uh, you tell me you tell me if uh, Vince deserves this. Vince is like Dana White, Goldberg said. He's the big boss and he makes everything happen. And in all honesty, he gave me the opportunity to put my wife and son on the front row and gave me the ability to perform again in front of them. So this is when he was come back, like in 2017, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I owe him everything until we went to Saudi Arabia. And he asked me to put Roman Reigns over and I had COVID. I remember calling him from my house and said, listen, here is the deal. I'll do it if you give me a retirement match. I did what Vince asked. As a performer, I was 56 years old. As a human being, you're conscious about how you look in a bathing suit, especially two months prior to being in that bathing suit you couldn't work out because you had COVID. I put myself in a horribly shitty situation to get what I, uh, what I wanted to, uh, is misprinted where I wanted to, but to satiate him and give him what he wanted. Problem is, he never held up his end of the bargain. Vince is a piece of shit as far as I'm concerned. Well, there you go. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised a bit because I, you know, Bill rarely talks that way. Like we speak publicly about somebody. Uh, yeah, really polite. But I think he he puts that in context quite well, right? You know, they, you know, a guy that's the whole character was based off of body. Uh, you know, suddenly you're putting yourself out there at a point where you probably shouldn't be. Uh, you know, but the the part about not, Vince not reciprocating the deal, big shocker. I mean, how I many? You can just take that segment out and plug that into like ninety nine percent of the other interviews that people done doing about Vince. I, my thinking on Vince is like when I saw the stuff from Endeavor and you and I had spoken the last time we recorded is I, I was surprised they cut him loose that quickly. My belief in this people that I've spoken to is that everybody's of the belief that something is going to come of this FBI investigation. Um, you know, it's uh, without getting into the politics stuff, the FBI is sort of like way out on the limb over here right now with the, the public sentiment. And, uh, you know, we're, again, where the world is and, and the stuff that we know. Like when I found out that, uh, you know, after Vince had allegedly paid the money back, uh, you know, basically stealing from the company when he and then paying it back, that okay, it's it's good. The money's back in the company. That makes the ledger right. But <laughs> you stole from a publicly traded company. You know, so it, 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 not so easy to wipe that away. Allegedly, do, do you uh, do you think that the FBI? Uh, the federal government is interested in Vince because of the NDAs he signed or because of business impropriety in one way or another? Uh, part of the NDAs, probably the fact that there's a relationship with a, a certain other former president, um, uh, uh, probably all of the above. But I think the biggest part is, I mean, certainly equaled all of those things, 
is when he won the case, the steroid trial. If you recall, he comes out on the front steps, takes the neck brace off because he didn't need to put on airs anymore for the, for the court, and then says, quote, I'm Vincent fucking McMahon. You don't poke the federal government bear that way. Uh, like I always tell people understanding government and teaching it. Uh, yeah, people come and they have careers and they retire and they move on. So it's not just so easy because the next, if that person is the person that should have gotten you and didn't, they're going to, as this young kid James comes in and say, hey, here's a file I want to keep an eye on, right? And 30 years from now, you're going to pass that file on to somebody. Uh, just take the high road. Uh, if, you, if you're fortunate, the federal government was like 97% of its cases. If you're one of those fortunate 3%, take that as a gimme, as a gift from Santa Claus or somebody upstairs and take the high road and move on. So I'd say this part a little bit of all, the NDAs, the, uh, the, 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 the stolen money, uh, even though paid back allegedly, um, the the NDAs and and certainly playing into this to some degree somewhere is an FBI that was a little bit butthurt from not winning that case uh, and, and Vince rubbing their nose in it. But yeah, it's, uh, the people that I'm speaking to are of the school belief that something will be coming of that. I'm a big fan of Bill Goldberg. A lot of people watching or some people really aren't. Uh, but, you know, horses for courses and that kind of thing, I really, really think a lot of Bill. I've never had the pleasure of talking to him. You've you've spent a good nearly two years in WCW with him. I'm sure you talked to him and wrestled him, in fact, uh, many times. From what you know about Bill, does he take the business too personally? Because he seems to really, even in, you know, his late 50s now, something yeah. that happens in the wrestling business, it really seems to get him right in the heart and he has a you know, he, 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 he can't, in the sense of, you know, when you say take the high road, I'm not saying take yeah. the high road, but he can't ignore it. He has to, uh, you know, yeah. he takes it personally. Uh, Bill's a great guy. Uh, I have nothing but but good things to say about Bill. Uh, when I wrestled him one time, we, we were in the ring one time together there, uh, he came to me and, you know, said, what do you, what do you, I got a couple of ideas and he starts to, Opened up on those ideas and he stopped himself and he said, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Shane Douglas. And he said, I'll listen to you. He summed along those lines. And, and so I, I really respected that. Uh, Bill, my take on Bill is two things here I think that need to play in. Uh, Bill is very much a hard on sleep type of guy. Uh, he does take things personally. And I think the reason he does is because everything he does is to, to, to the umpteenth degree. He wants to be as good at that as he can be. He came into our business quite late. Uh, I guess the story goes after Kevin had seen him bouncing somewhere, uh, Kevin Nash. And when you come into those dressing rooms, it doesn't, I don't care how big and tough and physically imposing you are. Uh, there, it's, you know, when you're young in that dressing room, you're very well aware, unless you're delusional, of what you don't know. When you're watching these other guys go out there and have these easy, you know, what seemingly was really, really easy uh, matches, uh, effortless looking, you know, and, and so he, I think he was always trying to live up to that. You know, he'd come from this great football career and, you know, coming into the dressing room where he's really not well versed at all in. Uh, I always found Bill to be incredibly respectful, personable, uh, never off putting or nose in the air type. Uh, so I have nothing bad to say about him. The fact that he said that, I think he did, you know, newsflash, 
promoters lie <laughs> and promoters named Vince McMahon lie proficiently. Um, I, I'm surprised that he that he's saying it out loud because it's sort of like the you know we, we chuckle at it when we we hear that because you know, it's almost quaint, right? That, that he expected him to live up to it. But yeah, I, I think that's probably why Bill went public and he realized, you know, I, I like how he thanked Vince and you know, said, hey, you gave me the opportunity to wrestle in front of my son and, and my wife, uh, you know, and, and then lowers the boom, you know, a lot more tactfully than other people I know would do it, right? But uh, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've got nothing but good things to say about Bill. And I know that a lot of people, fans in our business have certain opinions and people in the business have certain opinions. I've never had cause to say anything bad about about Bill. I've always found him to be professional, uh, respectful, polite, personable. Uh, so, you know, it's it's just sort of funny, like, for me to hear, like, like the, the Bill that I know, I, I would, I, if you'd have told me, like, what person and gave me a list of 10 names said this, Bill would probably have been the last person I picked on that list. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, it's a little it's sad epitaph here. The fact that we hear this so often, you know, when I first started going public with stuff like that, people were like, oh, you're going get your balls cut. People were like, you know, I don't care. I'm, I've always tried to speak truthfully to stuff. And, you know, for better for you, look, if you dislike me because I say the truth, uh, you know, then sorry. I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you know, in my business, there's far too many guys that come out, oh, he's a great guy. What are you talking about? He's a fantastic guy. He's a great guy. And then something happens. Then they go, oh, you know, uh, there was a the, you know the famous story about uh, at least infamous in Pittsburgh, uh, Mark Madden, who had been a big uh, Ric Flair fan, right? Nate called Nate, Nate's this, Nate's that. I said, look, Mark, Mark, I'm not telling you who to have friends, be friends with, whatever. I was telling you, he will stab you in the back the first chance he needs to. And oh no, not Nate's, not Nate's. Well, then we had that whole falling out, right? It took thirty years, but it but, but it came out. You know, leopards can't change their spots, uh, zebras don't change their stripes, uh, and you know it's it's, it's common. But but now after all these years, you you hear this repeatedly from people, right? Uh, both about Flair and now about Vince. Um, and I, I don't think that's just a, can't all be sour grapes, right? There's this litany, uh, almost routine thing that happens, and then you hear the stories. Hey, there might this screw might be turned a little different, or that nail might not be there, but it's the same wall built, right? It's the same story over and over again, and I think that speaks volumes. Peter D, you have had Francine and Tori ringside for you, both stunning women. Do they take away? from your persona in the ring as men are checking them out rather than watching you. Uh, no, I they, look, there, there's times that we in the ring would grab rest hold and, and need to, you know, if you're going to go out and do a 45, 50 minute match uh, and you know, they were great. You could obviously, I, I always joke around. Yeah. Somebody had to work with Tori and Franny. So I took one for the team. It was, uh, <laughs> they, they were both great to work with both incredibly professional, uh, both fast learners both eager to perform, uh, both took on those roles, uh, you know, and, and, you know, Franny and I have talked about it publicly. Uh, I, I feel sort of foolish now in 23 saying this, but in, in hindsight, I'm glad that we did because uh, uh, we're like best buddies now. We're like brother and sister. Uh, when we get around each other, we just, like two goofballs. Uh, and throw Sam in and forget about it. You're going to laugh. You're going to pee your pants. Um, but it, it's comfortable being around her. Uh, because there's not some weird thing we had done in the past and like trying to pretend it didn't happen or whatever. Uh, 
Plus, I was raised in, you know, a little soapbox side for a second. I was raised in a world where marriage didn't work. Everybody I knew, my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, most of my friends. I had two friends whose parents stayed married. And not that they fought or anything, but they didn't look especially happy together. They would sit down and watch TV, never say a word to each other. And so I grew up telling myself I'm never going to get married. Uh, and I fervently meant that. Uh, in large parts, I didn't want to raise kids the way I was raised. And I, I got no boo-hoo story. I had a great upbringing. But I didn't want kids raised in that kind of a, you know, you know, a, a system. And, and, you know, so I, you know, go ahead and do this and, and then find out. Uh, but when I did finally decide to get married, to me, it was, th this is going to fail in spite of me. It's not going to be because I'm not screwing around on the road or grabbing a rat here or there. Uh, I would, I, and I can look my boys in the eye today and put my hand on a Bible and swear on everything I believe to be holy, uh, that I never cheated on their mother would have never cheated on their mother. Now, again, I feel a little bit foolish in hindsight, you know, because let's face it, Franny wasn't bad on the eyes, uh, but both Tori and Franny and all three of us, every bit of that, I swear on my kids, was a, was completely professional. And there's times and I feel stupid saying that, but uh, I'm so glad it is because like, I see Tori rarely. And when we do, it's, it's always great. Uh, Franny and I see we, we talk to each other 20 times a week on the phone, uh, either by text or or straight uh, by voice. Uh, and I'm glad for that because it, it's not weird or odd at all. It's just a, just hanging out with buds, you know, and uh, uh, I, I count her as a good friend. I count Tori as a good friend, although I don't see her very often. And I'm glad that we that we took that approach to it uh, because it it would make it sort of weird today, I think. What makes a good valet and what makes a bad valet? Uh, to me, a, a bad valet, uh, there are a lot of things that would go into that. Uh, taking too much of the spotlight. Well, that's what uh, I'm actually, that's exactly what I was going to get at. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to cut you off on the yeah. story there, but I mean, you know, Francine, Tory, beautiful women. I mean, mm -hmm. even with them doing nothing, but, you know, they're dressed yeah. scantily to catch the eye, of course, of the most yeah. male audience. How does they? How do they not take the spotlight away from you a bit, but then other valets might? Uh, because there's a time to come to life, and there's a time to acquiesce. Uh, both of them picked it up incredibly quickly. Uh, thank God. Uh, when we need a breather, when we do all this, blah, 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 grab a hold. Okay, now boom, take take the attention away. Franny also then gave to me that counterbalance, like you, excuse me, and later Tori. Where you you wanted to like him because they're so good looking and and beautiful, but they like this guy, and they're helping this guy, and you know so it was really easy for them to once they got past a certain point with the triple threat, uh, which I include Franny and there's four of us. Uh, there you know we get this panoply of reaction. I would get booed. Uh, Chris would get. Sort of, uh, like, sort of like they liked them. Bammer would get the golf clap, the respect thing, and Franny would go, ooh. So we had these four different reactions, you know, and I knew we had to get that sort of more in a singular vein as opposed to this all over the place because then it's going to be a pop when Bam Bam goes in. It's going to be, you know, the, the respect thing when Candido goes in. It's going to be the woo-la-la when Franny pops her stuff, and it's going to be boo when I get in there. We needed to standardize that. And with Tori later, that would be when we had the same same issue, because again, beautiful woman, uh, great body, very, very athletic, um, where they wanted to hate me and love her, and so we started her hitting the line, don't hate me because I'm this beautiful. 
Like when you look to the lady next to you, don't, don't, don't hate us because I'm that much better looking. And that started getting the, the unfortunately we weren't given the same kind of time that Franny and I had to, to, to flesh that out. Uh, but the, you know, there is a way for you as the worker to keep that in control. So when we would go to the ring, if you recall, like with Francine and Tori, be the ropes open, give them the center walk, right? So they're the star for that, that, that outset, you know, do the kiss, the chest beat. She's got the center lane. Uh, so she's in spotlight for, for a moment. Then I would come in, we would gravitate together. Then once the match started, she'd get out and she knew very quickly our trips to and from the buildings would be constantly talking about either things she did last time on the way to the building or things she did tonight on the way back from the building. She would ask the perfectly right questions. If you would have thrown me in with any world champion when I was less than a year in the business, uh, I would have probably crapped my pants and uh, probably would have really lasted up. Uh, but she really took it quickly. And where I knew Francine had finally captured that character, embodied it, was we did the entrance the one time I hold the ropes, the kiss, the chest beat. She goes in. Now, typically when I would come in, she would just sort of circle back and come with me back into the corner. On this particular night, completely unbeknownst to me, we do the rope, the kiss, the chest beat. She takes the center walk, and I come. And instead of following me, she goes the opposite direction. Where the hell is she going? And uh, she does this really sexy walk along the ropes and gets in the corner opposite me and looks at me, drops her head like this sexy glance, drops down onto all fours and like a cat crawls across the ring and comes up and kisses the belt. I went, nothing else I can teach you. You got it. <laughs> I'd never thought of that. And, uh, you know, it was perfect. And she, both of them, both her and Tori were very willing students. Uh, they would ask the right questions when you'd give them something, you didn't have to go back and reiterate it. They would, would execute it. Uh, and both were so easy to work with because of that professionalism. And, uh, you know, like I said, I look back and somebody had to work with those two beautiful women. And so I took one for the team. It was uh, <laughs> tough, tough to do. <laughs> uh, I interrupted you a few minutes ago when you were about to tell a story. Was it the, was that the one that I interrupted you over or was it something else? Uh, no, I think I was just going to say like, you know, for, I think at that time we interrupted, I was going to make the point that, you know, when the two wrestlers are in the ring and they're exerting all of this to, to put this spot on or this, uh, this part of the match together, that's when they have to sort of become more invisible. So mm -hmm. less movement, less whatever. Now we grab a hold, start to bang, you know, the baby face starts making that comeback. Now Francine starts coming in and she, you know, again, because we had so much more time together where she would come on franchise and, and, and would give that look and everybody in that building that hated my guts. And why are you cheering for this jerk off? Uh, and then like when we needed like a real attention getter, Boom, let her pop up, do whatever. And then Franny was always good. Something Tori did less of. Uh, but what Franny was always so good for, she's you know, she's built like a stick, right? I mean, she's beautifully embodied, but you know, 100 pounds soaking wet, power bombs through tables, Bammer pressing them over his head and throwing her. Uh, th there was always going to be that one thing that would just let the fans go, oh, you deserve that bitch because you like that jerk off, right? And so it was just another, just like an easy explosion in the match that you could get. 
and the fact that she was such a willing participant and, and again, bumps like that ain't easy. Uh, you know, power bomb off the top of that table. Ah. <laughs> again, golf clap. Cause I have yeah, That's a stiff, stiff bump. And Franny never complained when she broke her hip. She didn't complain. She said my hip bothering me, but she'd, Oh, poor me, my, my hip. And, and she just fits so perfectly into that dressing room. That's why whenever I say the boys, I mean, everybody in that dressing room, they're all the boys, right? Cause they're all putting on, you know, Carrie, uh, having lost the foot, um, we traveled together and it was strange to this day. I don't know how he did it. We would walk into a building and, you know, carrying our bags, dressing room this way, Carrie would go this way. And five minutes later, he would come back completely dressed in gear. And so it was clear to anybody that paid attention <clears throat> There were two stories that he had the ankle fused, that the ankle was gone, that the foot was gone. And I thought, well, this is, if he doesn't want anybody to know, that's his personal right, you know? And I I just couldn't buy that the foot was gone because if you watch him performing as the Texas Tornado and doing the bolo punch and stuff, I'm like, if he's got no foot, that's pretty amazing. Well, he had no foot and it, it was amazing. Uh, he was an, a stud of an athlete. Um, but, you know, I, I did it. I tried as hard as I could to not impinge on that personal part of his life. <clears throat> he and I would room together quite often. And we were in Los Angeles. Uh, my brother had been a set designer that passed away in 2019, early 2020. Um, and he had gotten me a reading for a script from a lady that he'd worked with. Boots Hart was her name. And uh, I'd gone out and done the reading. We had dinner and I, I went back. And I would always make noise at the door to, 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 so he, if he wanted to cover up or whatever. And he always, always did. Well, I made a bunch of noise door and I opened it and I, I go to walk in and I could see the leg, no foot. So I closed the door quietly and made noise again and you know, kept, I finally went into the bathroom and they finally did cover up. Uh, I don't say that to embarrass him in any way. I say it to, to like really put him on a pedestal because again, go back and watch him performing as Carrie Von Eric. This is before all these new prosthetics that came up because of the Gulf War and I mean the uh, the war on terror and these new amazing prosthetics that, that these uh, uh, people have. Uh, and you go back and watch basically with a prosthetic foot with a slip on sleeve and watch Carrie perform and <laughs> see if you could see him missing a step anywhere or, you know, really struggling to get there. He was, he was an amazing, and I, I'm sure they will hit on that in, in the movie, uh, but I'm definitely going to go see the movie because I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see what they do with it, what liberties they do take. I'm sure they will take some, uh, but you know, overall, I think it's, a, it's the story, even aside from the tragedy of a family who, who stepped into professional wrestling, you know, had their father as the stepping stone into the business. And even in spite of all this tragedy still left that big of a mark on the business. And that, that, again, that ain't easy to do. Uh, the rumor that I was heard as a fan regarding Kerry's foot was that he'd injured it in a motorcycle accident, had surgery on it. And then someone who bet him that he couldn't walk across the dressing room and then he tried it. And that's when the, the absolute serious damage was done. Is that yeah. what you heard? Is there any truth to that? Yes. It wasn't a motorcycle. It was a quad. Sorry. And he was out riding around and he came, was coming up a real steep hill, I believe on their property. And somebody had called the police, I guess. And for, for whatever reason, and it, again, my understanding is it was on their own property. And when he got to the peak of the hill, he saw the cop cruiser sitting there and he, just instinctively tried to turn well his ankle got caught in between and the foot peg went through his ankle uh and just completely shattered the ankle and he would later tell me that you know the the the, the addiction that he followed up with that that would lead ultimately to his suicide uh was 
you know, he said, you don't realize how much of a shock absorber your foot is. And so every step he would take, even with the prosthetic foot, it would go into his ankle or, or his lower leg, into his knee, into his hip, into his back. And each one of those, you know, was just pain, 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 pain. And, uh, uh, you know, he had gotten busted for writing bad scripts and the, the you know, they, they obviously the family was well known in Dallas and the judge told him like, you know, warned him prior to that. If I see him here again and saw him in there again, and he told him to go home, get his affairs in order. And, uh, Carrie went and took the other way out. And, uh, uh, I remember that like really when I heard that it really jarred me because of the conversations that he and I had had in the car. Uh, but you know, you put a 44 Magnum to your chest, <clears throat> that ain't a cry for help. You're, mm -hmm. you're serious about leaving. And, uh, so again, I, I hope the movie, even if it touches on the tragedy and, and, and brings it into it, I hope it really does get into the type of people they were, you know, cause again, as little as I'd met Kevin through the course, we didn't, our, our careers didn't really intersect much. Uh, Kevin was really quiet compared to the other ones as far as I was concerned. Uh, but you know, you could always seem like a really good guy, uh, and there's guys in our business, I'm sure a lot would say about me that, you know, some of us are assholes and, and some, I always saw Kevin like that. And I, and I love Carrie. Carrie was just a, you know, a great guy. So I, I hope that I'm sure the movie will, you know, like dip into all that, but I'll definitely be in a theater with my popcorn catching it for sure. Barely Legal should have actually aired originally in late 1996, but Wade Keller, uh, whatever business it was of his, alerted Request TV to an incident that happened in late 1996 that actually put off all the pay-per-view providers. Do you remember what that incident was? What, I'm, God, I was hoping it could come in the form of a question. Was it the branding incident with uh, with Todd and uh, or Todd with uh, Terry and uh, Mick? No, uh, I believe, or what I've read is it was the mass transit incident oh yes and, yeah, yeah that absolutely that absolutely pushed back the pay-per-view this is when paul then had to start doing you know a goodwill tours to all the pay-per-view providers to try and get them to change their mind yeah. um yeah. so what a perfect time to talk about the mass transit incident then from beginning sure. to end uh what do you remember it was called eric coolas for some reason i've written no information yes. on it so eric coolas turns up and uh from beginning to end what happens well, in this rare instance in ECW lore, I, I play an integral role to this because I was there. Uh, Kaz, me, and Paul were sitting at a card table in, in the uh, the Wonderland, which was a dog race uh, venue. And uh, we would have the shows in the, uh, the, you know, where the fans could sit inside in air conditioning and stuff. And we'd set up in a hallway there. They had a big opening area, like where the concession stands and things were. Excuse me. And we had to take the ceiling tiles and things out. Me and Taz were sitting there talking with Paul, Paul had a little card table that he would set up uh, uh, and doing his booking and, and things for the show that night. And I remember Eric Kulis walking in with one of the, the uh, be careful here, right? Uh, uh, you know, having had Dylan on my show a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, and he, he's fine with it, uh, but a midget wrestler, a little person wrestler, right. That, that had come in with an for, for the life of me. I'm so sorry. I cannot remember who, what the name, what his name was, but I remember him sitting and Taz around this time, got up and walked away. Uh, he wasn't the midget Eric, wrestler, by the way, was he? Taz. Eric Coolis? No, Taz. Oh, Taz. Taz. <laughs> oh, no. Boy, brother, you're going to have heat. It's, <laughs> sorry, <dude. laughs> no, no, it's, uh, uh, and Eric stood there uh, very quietly 
And the guy that he'd come with had said to Paul, can you get my guy on the show? And Paul turned to Eric Kulis and asked him a couple of questions. How long have you been training? He said, two years. He said, uh, who trained you? He said, Killer Kowalski. Uh, he asked him if he'd ever bladed. And he said, yes. Uh, Paul then said, I, I only have one opening on the show. It's against New Jack. You can have it if you want it. And he said, yes. Uh, now, at this point, I, I was around. I, I can't separate from like what I actually heard with my ears. Uh, but I do recall hearing the conversations about it. New Jack saying to him, don't worry, I'll cut you. Uh, I don't know if I heard that with my own ears. But I do know that I, I heard Eric Kula say he was willing to blade um, at that show. We had, and Paul had also asked him his age, and he said 19. So, you know, he was a big, heavy kid. So it was really hard to tell, you know, this kid was what he said. And it wasn't typical in a dressing room when you'd walk in and say, hey, I'm Shane Douglas. I'd like to wrestle for you today. How do you have an ID? Right. It, it just wasn't <laughs> something you did. And, uh, you know, so uh, uh, he accepted uh, the match. And I was now back preparing for my match. And as I recall, it was me and Tammy, Francine, and, and Candido in, in one of the dressing rooms all the way at the end of the hall. And I hear this hustle bustle going on, like something's clearly wrong. A lot of times that would happen in ECW, you assume that there might be a riot or something going on. So we all ran out. And uh, there's this mayhem and screaming, and the screaming is coming from the father. Uh, you know, my, uh, I mean, like really, really frantic. And then I look on the monitor and there is just a puddle of blood in the ring. And I'm like, I'm confused. Like what in the hell happened here? And their ambulance is taking the kid out and they got compresses on his head and his dad's moaning and wailing and uh, it just mass confusion. Uh, and you know, then, you know, the follow-up on the story of course comes through just the years of hearing the story being retold, uh, that he had gone into a depression and subsequently died at some point after that, uh, you know, an, an awful, awful thing. And, and I think the fans know enough out there that whenever I say these things, I'm not saying these things to protect or uh, convict Paul Heyman. I was there when the kid told Paul, he was 19 years old, that he had wrestled for two years, that he'd been trained by killer Kowalski and that he had bladed previously. Uh, so what goes on from there? You know, for for the fans out there that may not understand the dynamics in a wrestling dressing room, if you and I are wrestling tonight, and I say to you, "Hey, do you feel comfortable doing A, B, or C?" Uh, and you say yes, then I'm going to assume that you know how to take A, B, or C, and and, and how to protect yourself as long as I deliver it, you know, safely to you. Uh, and and of course, you know, there's so many rooms for margins of error. You know, you're sweaty, tired, blown up something in the ring gives there's a million different variables that can can go into that but uh the where the mistake was made like i said earlier about davy haskins watching uh him let somebody else cut him never let somebody else cut you in this business uh you know and if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself then don't do it uh obviously new jack cut too far now i've heard new jack's take on the story and and uh you know full disclosure jack and i were friends uh, but New Jack, there was a, a mystique, a myth, a mythical side of New Jack that, uh, Jerome, you know, would, would, would play on. And I think, you know, he said, he, he you know, later he would say he tried to kill the kid and, you know, glorify it. That was building his image. Uh, you know, it was certainly a tactless thing, but, uh, uh, 
you know, I, I think clearly that in the case that Jack Cunningham cutting obviously too far, uh, too deeply, uh, but that in and of itself should not be. I don't want to say it's not dangerous. I mean, you cut into an artery, obviously that's dangerous. But when you have medical attention there, and and we did, uh, and you're being tended to, and you're you know you're taken to the hospital, that's a fairly mundane repair to, to sew up an artery and uh you know and and close the the kid up and everything uh i don't for a second suggest that eric deserved what happened to him uh but when you come into wrestling like we all understand there for everything is an for every accident equal or greater reaction you have responsibilities to your actions uh when you go into a dressing room like ecw and i and by this time you know ecw is image was fairly renowned uh it wasn't like you walked in there holy crap i had no idea this is what ecw was uh when you go in there and misrepresent something there are repercussions to that and and i again i don't suggest that eric deserved what happened to him uh but you know it, it's to go in and, and what blew me away was the father was not there at the table earlier in the night he was i don't know if they wouldn't let him in the dressing room or if he was somewhere else in the dressing room area but when I saw him there afterwards, I mean, I, I'm a father, so I can obviously imagine my son being in this position and, and how stressful and awful that must have been. But I also wouldn't let my kid walk into a wrestling dressing room by himself and representing things that may or may not be true. Uh, but it, that, you know, that was one of those things. And, and, and in some macabre way, uh, I think that that lent to the ECW image, uh, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, there was this, and still is in some places, this image of ECW that permeates that somehow we were just a bit crazier, uh, a bit more dangerous, whatever. Fact B is ECW was as safe as any place else, uh, at least from, from my point of view on it. Uh, we did push the envelope, and, and uh, when I say we, we had others in the company that would push the envelope, you know, the swinging scaffolds, and I watched on barely legal uh you know dick take his choke slam off the uh, yeah. crow's nest from from uh, tommy dreamer you know those type, those are hard hard bumps to take and in any one of them you know something catastrophic could happen the fact that it didn't more often happen in ecw i think to me is is, is more the bigger like wow factor that is that there weren't more people seriously injured in ecw because of the way they pushed the envelope but i think again that that's more to the testament of how safe the wrestlers were being in while they were executing this stuff. Yesterday, as we record this, this is uh, being recorded on a Saturday, Vince McMahon resigned from WWE and, and at more specifically the TKO board. Yeah. And ah, there's a lot to say about this. Would you like to start off or would you like me to give you all the latest news first to react to? Yeah, let's get the latest because like I was traveling yesterday and like when it first started breaking, uh, you know, it was almost hourly there were new points coming out. And then I was driving all day yesterday, so I'm sure there's probably been at least a few things that have come out that I hadn't had a chance to catch up on yet. So bring me up to speed, please. Okay, uh, the uh, the lawyer for the lady in question, Janelle Grant, was on a uh, law. A legal podcast, essentially. Uh, she didn't really add much to it, so and luckily I, I didn't write down any of the quotes for that. But uh, the uh, m latest news is about 10 hours from when we record this, Vince McMahon 
has resigned. Nick Khan of WWE and TKO said, I wanted to inform you that Vince McMahon has tendered his resignation from his positions as TKO executive chairman and on the board of TKO directors. He will no longer have a role with TKO Group Holding or WWE. That was an internal email uh, that was made public to everybody relevant. And Vince McMahon has made a statement as well, saying, I stand by my prior statement that Ms. Grant's lawsuit is replete with lies, obscene made-up instances that never occurred, and is a vindictive distortion of the truth. I intend to vigorously defend myself against these baseless accusations and look forward to clearing my name. And then he said, out of respect for WWE and TKO, he has resigned on that basis, effective immediately. Previous news was that TKO's response uh, originally was that it was going to be an internal investigation into Vince McMahon, as I'm sure you'll expect. And one of the bigger bits of news that could have a knock-on effect is that Slim Jim has paused advertising with WWE. They were going to sponsor, as we record this, tonight's Royal Rumble match. And they've now pulled out, uh, paused, essentially. Slim Jim values integrity and respect in all of our partnerships. Given the recent disturbing allegations... Against Vince McMahon at this time, we've decided to pause our promotional activities with WWE. This decision reflects our commitment to our brand values and responsibility to our community. The only other thing is that as of now, as we record this, uh, the Royal Rumble press conference is still going ahead. But maybe they might want to cancel that. Yeah, I could very well. Well, first of all, I did know all of that except the Slim Jim part. So that's the part that popped in after I was on the road. Uh, You know, I'm just sitting here wondering as you were saying that. Uh, you know, with this recently announced $5 billion deal with uh, Netflix, that was my first curiosity that popped into my head uh, when I heard this is like, you know, that this deal's pending. Uh, never read one sentence of it was told it had a five year uh, an out clause after five years. Yep. Yep. So, uh, uh, you know, I'd be curious to know, again, not being an attorney, you know, because this is the kind of stuff like, you know, if, if it's, Validated, you know, if it turns out because all let's phrase with allegations, right? These are all allegations at this point. Being a constitutional guy here in America, everybody is uh presumed innocent until proven guilty, and uh, you know, so this is let's assume on both sides of the fence, let's assume the girl's not telling the truth, and this is gonna clearly has already done some damage to that brand, uh. Now, how quickly they can bounce back. And let's assume that Vince did it. The girl's right. Uh, You know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, as we know in this world today, destroys people's lives, you know. So uh, this is, like I said, uh, the other day I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, you know, with uh, how big this is. And at one point, I don't know what it is now, but a few years ago, WWE was the sixth most recognizable brand on the planet. You know, there. So this is going to catch eyeballs all over the world. You know, Vince McMahon is a worldwide figure because of WWE, and uh, you know, certainly not going to be on par as far as uh, uh, import as, like, say, the, the OJ trial. But this is probably going to be the closest equivalent that kids that that were born after that are going to see. Uh, it, it's just a fascinating thing, and you know, I'll just muse for one second on my soapbox. We've talked about this before. I've talked about it in multiple other shows and interviews. When you are in a bubble, it's very easy to lose sight of what the reality of the world around you is. And I'm not uh, saying this as a as my nod of approval to it, but in wrestling, we live in a bubble, especially in a company as big as WWE. 
And, and some of those people take that to meaning things like we can do pretty much whatever we want and, uh, you know, we're going to be protected. And, you know, there are plenty of stories out there, and, and I'm sure many of them accurate as to the examples of that from guys in the business. Vince McMahon has, you know, he has entered that, that rarefied, stratified portion of the human uh, population that very, very, very few people in history have ever breathed that air. Uh, you could see how something like that, as successful as he's been, as powerful as he's been, that, uh, that you could have a sense of entitlement and, uh, uh, you know, that you know, impervious because this fiefdom called the WWE is my kingdom and I can do whatever I want here. And nobody in, you know, it's like the, the people in the interview room that day doing the vignettes that had just said my way was better. Vince came in and suddenly his way was better. So, you know, the employees there have a very, uh, I don't know if it's something that goes out in a memo or if it's just, you know, acknowledged that whatever Vince says goes. And, you know, so just the opportunity, when you have that kind of money to put layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of protection and alibi or whatever else. That said, I, I it, there, there are certain things about Vince that I'm hearing from friends of mine. I, I never knew Vince quite that well, but about being a clean freak, you know. So the defecation thing in his office seems like if you're you know, if you're a clean freak, I don't think you'd want to have you know feces uh, floating around your office. But again, who knows what goes through people's heads? And it's uh, it, it, I just wrap it up with this: it's going to make a hell of an interesting. Uh, year or two, whatever it's going to take for this to go on, because this is going to take on, you know, with all the nuances of quote unquote sports entertainment, this is going to take on its own life. You can already see the memes writing themselves, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, the- I've, I've been sent quite a few, I must say. With, <laughs> um, but you know what? You, you mentioned two things that, like, uh, Cosby, Bill Cosby. Uh, sure. Harvey Weinstein or Weinstein, uh, Donald Trump has had a lot of accusations. He just lost a big um, defamation suit as well. In fact, yesterday as we record this, some people who sort of rise to the top have fame, fortune, a sense of entitlement, and it seems with Vince because there are so many. End- you know when you say there's no smoke without fire kind of thing. I mean. I, I really don't like that saying because it's not fair sometimes to say that. But with Vince, there are so many NDAs, there are so many accusations, there are so many rumors going around him. You can't see the fire for the smoke. There's right. there's so there's just decades of accusations, and there's nearly twenty million dollars out just in NDAs of, of the women who allegedly were assaulted. Because we always have to say allegedly, we always have to qualify that, and rightly so. That. How many more are there out there? Will more women, um, you know, have the courage to, assuming all this happened, of course, uh, come out and and share their stories as well? My guess would be yes. I mean, again, no inside information, but, you know, uh, a leopard doesn't change his spots and a tiger doesn't change his stripes, right? So if you've done it once and gone away with it, and I think underscoring this as, as just like sort of the bedrock to all of this, uh, in support of what you're saying is that we already now know that Vince was basically stealing money from the company to to pay a lot of these people off. So his character's already impugned. 
And you know, it's you know, when I see the the Mia Culpa, you know, I look forward to doing that. I mean, that's just standard, you know, uh, boilerplate uh, uh, comment of what you have to say in, in a situation like this. But yeah, it, it's you know, it surprises me that here we are, what three, four, five, six years after this whole Me Too movement starts, and uh, you know, level that a lot of that playing field. Uh, I thought that when that first started happening, because, you know, we we've heard things in our in the industry, excuse me, and, you know, wonder, like, are these women going to start coming out of the woodwork? And there there seemingly weren't like, you know, a couple of things popped up here and there, but, you know, it sort of weathered over it and, and, and Vince went through it sort of unscathed, which to those of us in the business, you know, we were like, how the hell do you pull that one off? You know, like, to, to, to be able to get through all that. And, you know, again, I'll plead my naivete. Uh, when we found out that there was the, an FBI investigation, I just assumed that that was over the embezzlement money and, you know, the payoff money and everything. Well, well, actually, and, uh, because you mentioned that, this is a civil suit. This isn't a criminal suit. So would the FBI get involved with a civil suit like this? Well, no, but they might very well. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of U.S. agencies right now do things outside the the boundaries and uh you know would they being that uh vince is is aligned a certain way uh politically that you know would there be you know some hey back chill hey hey attorney here's some papers you didn't get them from us type of thing uh i, I don't know but you know this is the kind of thing remember when i said and i don't know if it was on, on on here with you james or one of the other podcasts or some other interview Whenever Vince came out of the steroid trial, well, back in the nineties, and uh, you know, ripped the neck brace off into yeah. Vincent yeah. McMahon, uh, and I said, "This is why you don't fuck, you don't poke that bear. You know, just stay to the high road. You look forward to getting back to work and you know, putting a great product out. But by doing that, all you do is you get that whole agency going, fangs out, and we'll sit and wait like wolves in in, in, in sheep's clothing, and." Uh, you know, it's you know going to be a lot of time for him to second guess a lot of the stuff he's done. Uh, but you, you know, Vince, uh, he, he's he's an intelligent guy and he's an incredibly successful guy. Uh, you know, I, uh, my personal differences with him aside, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens here. And uh, you know, is you know this this woman's attorney who I have no idea who it is, but is are they going to be up for the challenge of going against that Goliath? You know, the, the Goliath of even though he's not part of TKO and WWE supposedly anymore right now, uh, you know, he Vince is a formidable uh, a person in that way, and he and he will come out swinging, and you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's, uh, I'll say this, if this happened, again, these are allegations at this point, if this happened, kudos to this young girl that she came out and, you know, stood up for herself. If she didn't, if it didn't happen, to propone for Vince as as little as I like to, uh, uh, this will have done some bit of damage to him because, you know, there's always people, and I think there's a lot of uh, evidence to it, that'll say, ah, He's a billionaire. That's why he got off. Or he knows Donald Trump is white. Or he knows this or that or whatever. Uh, you know. So it, it, I'm just sort of fascinated, just sitting and watching. I love this kind of 
uh, you know, stuff just to the nuts and bolts of the law of it, you know, and, the, and, the, and what the Constitution says, uh, you know, pertaining to this kind of thing. So it's going to be, I think, that, you know, Orville Redenbacher is going to be seeing their stock pop up here quite a bit the next year or two. <laughs> Dark Side of the Ring Season 5, the subjects have been announced and there is either 9 or 10. I've got about 10, I think. So I'm going to read them out to you and then I'm going to pick up one or two that I'd like you to get to talk about. Chris Adams is one of the big ones because they've actually got the guy interviewed who killed him. Wow. So uh, he's actually doing a sit-down talk interview about what sort of led to uh, their scuffle and death and whatever. Uh, Next, Sensational Sherry, Terry Gordy, Black Saturday, Chris Colt, which is an interesting one because not too many people have heard about him. The Sandman, which I don't know... I don't, I don't know quite what that's going to be unless it's that fight at Lou Albano's deal or something, I don't know uh, Earthquake, which I don't know how that's going to ha- handle it, either way Harley Race, uh, this has been wow. suggested that this might be about the car crash that killed his pregnant wife and nearly severed his leg back in Ooh. the 60s I imagine and the last two r- r- rounding it out is Brutus Beefcake so probably the parasailing accident and yep. Buff Bagwell um, I'm going to ask you about Chris Adams first. I don't know how much time you spent around Chris. He was in WCW for yeah, brief yeah. periods of time. At, yeah, he, he was in UWF when I went down. I'm sorry, yeah, uh, he was in the UWF as, as well, of course. Yeah, so uh, stories about Chris and why he others otherwise might be in Dark Side of the Ring. Yeah, well, we just use the phrase hothead, right? He he was he had this zero to six hundred temper that would blow uh quite often i at the time i wasn't aware of just how deeply into drugs he had gotten uh but you know and i can't say that i even saw him using drugs or maybe i did if i did it was one of those things where it was so ubiquitous he didn't even pay attention to it because everybody was doing that uh we were in a car one time uh we being davy haskins was driving my first partner uh Ron Simmons, uh who, you know, anybody that knows Ron just loves Ron. Ron's just a, just a good dude. Uh, you know, we the, the UWF was a driving territory, some sometimes 10,000 miles a week. And you know, crammed into this car, we all have shit tons of bags because we're on the road forever. And you know, Ron's got the front seat because he's the biggest of all of us. And, you know, we all have bags behind us on our laps. Ron's got bags under his legs. And, and we've, we're driving to uh, northern uh, Alabama or Louisiana, northern Louisiana, uh, Jackson, or Mississippi, uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And it's from where we were the night before, I think Baton Rouge. It's a long drive, seven, eight, nine hours. It's a good long drive. And we're about a half hour into the ride, and, and Chris – He's just angry because we're all crammed in this car and he's he's sitting behind Ron and he hits the back of the chair. And Ron, you know, being Ron, goes, hey, hey, calm down, Chris. None of us are comfortable. Like, you've got a long drive ahead of us. And this goes on, uh, you know, several more times. And finally, Ron draws a line in the sand and says, you hit the back of that chair one more time. We're going to pull this car over. And... And I'm sitting there watching Chris and like, it was almost like he did it just to see if he was serious, right? And, and again, Ron looks at Dave, he goes, pull this car over. <laughs> and he got out, he wouldn't fight Ron. 
but he ran through all of his stuff out on the side of the road and we drove away. That was the last I ever saw Chris Adams. Uh, he never made the building that night and I never saw him again after that. And it wasn't immediately after, but some, you know, within the, the next year, year and a half, I guess. Uh, what, what year did he die? Was it around 2000? I don't have that information, but it was around 2000. Okay, so yeah, it would have been some time later. But when I remember hearing it and thinking to myself, like, it, you know, the, the circumstances surrounding it, uh, it didn't shock me because, you know, you know, let's face it, Ron's a big guy, very easy going guy, but certainly not somebody who wanted to keep like poking, poking, poking to test. And, uh, you know, and, and then like the, then the, the lurid details of all the drug use and everything that started coming out. Uh, you know, Chris had a, uh, like a lot of the other great English wrestlers, right? Had the, uh, uh, had a certain pedigree to him. You know, just because of the accent and the, the the style that he had learned over there and brought to America with him, uh, you know, he he had far preceded a lot of the other guys. You know, the uh, uh, Fit Finleys and a lot of those guys that had come over later uh, and and took it to a different level. But Chris was one of the first that I remember coming and and you know being so overtly British, and you know that had a. Uh, had an effect, and, and you know, let's face it, a good-looking guy. But when he turned into the heel role, it was almost like that was like the real him. You know, you started seeing this wasn't just the character he was playing out in front of the cameras. It was uh, almost, in a sense, like how Brian Pillman did the loose cannon thing, right? Like it's always on, always in character. Uh, but you know, and uh, you know, I always thought it was a shame because Chris, you know, was a, a darn good worker in the ring. And he, it, even at that time, before, like I said, years before I even heard anything about the drug use, it seemed to me that he was so self-destructive. Like he would do these things that would get himself in trouble, knock down the card, suspended for a month, you know, th these types of things. It was just this constant tripping himself up, tripping up his own career. And, uh, but I do remember like the one thing, I, I guess on a positive note, uh, when I first met him, he was one of the guys that Bill Watts had sent to Pittsburgh uh, to run the uh, shows that Dominic had run, where we ultimately had met uh, uh, Eddie Gilbert and, and Terry Ted and all the guys. Uh, Chris was on that loop, and he had always had an instant camera with him. And he was always taking pictures of the buildings and the dressing rooms. And I, I remember thinking to myself, like, we're in the dressing rooms every night. We're in buildings every night. What's, and he said, because now this is what we remember. So he has like the visual. And I look back now and I'm thinking to myself, boy, I wish maybe I had the, not necessarily every take a picture of every single building and everything, but you know, it's all now just a blur to memory because you didn't take time to, you know, to uh catalog any of that. So uh but I, he was the first and I think the only person I ever saw do that. Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm sure somewhere there's probably a lot of, you know, interesting and probably a lot of dull pictures laying around somewhere. <laughs> This is one of the biggest uh, pieces of news of the last month or so, but it's quite old news as we're recording this now, yep. is that Tammy Sitch was sentenced to 17.6 years. And because she's in Florida, she must do at least 85% of her time before she's eligible yep. for 
parole. And uh, I'm sure everybody knows the story. I'm going to very quickly just rattle through it because, I mean, I've read it so many times before, but March 2022, Tammy Sitch, almost four times over the legal limit uh, for blood alcohol, crashed a sedan in a high-rate speed into Julian Lasseter 75's car, Daytona Beach, kills him, injures uh, three people in the car in front of Julian Lasseter's car as well. I believe she was driving, I think she gave the excuse something to do with she was going getting ingredients for tacos or something like that. Anyway, that was the excuse she gave. She ends up getting arrested quite a few weeks afterwards and then she gets uh, her bail revoked on May 13th. And what else should I add? Uh, Yes, so uh, did you see any of the actual judgment itself because it was all live streamed? Yes, in fact, you can imagine that my phone started, you know, going crazy. Everybody, hey, you're watching this. And uh, the everything you said is the way I understand it. Uh, I, I I don't want to in any way get anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not giving Tammy a get out of jail free card. But this in the business that we were in, where people get sort of this bubble wrap put around them by the business, and you can go ahead and do whatever you want and. How many times I've you know it's, I've talked about this ten thousand times. How many times and I was always the last guy to take the piss test because everybody had my piss in visine bottles <laughs> to be able to pass the test. Uh, just those sorts of things that somehow we get treated differently in in, in many respects. Uh, I think in Tammy's case that didn't serve well. Uh, you know the, the young girl that I'd first met in ECW. I was aware of Tammy and met her hello, like say hello. But to get to know her in ECW, along with Chris, uh, very intelligent young lady, uh, uh, had told me at one point that she was accepted to medical school. This was at the same time that I was prepping for med school. And so I would throw things at her and she knew her stuff. So I can't say that she was accepted to medical school, but I know that she knew medicalese pretty well. Uh, for, for you know, Medicalese can get sort of daunting for, for lay people. Uh, she was pretty crisp with it. All had a fairly good head on her shoulders, understood the business pretty well, uh, seemed to be very much a level-headed girl. And I, I keep asking myself, through all those drunk driving incidences, uh, where, again, she was obviously treated differently. You know, most people get popped once or twice, and they're in, like, serious trouble. And she sort of kept getting this little slap on the wrist and pushed off to the side. And, again, that doesn't make it okay. But you can see from her point of view, well, I've done this before, you know, I'm you know, I can I can do two three weeks in jail, whatever. Well, Me, I don't. I couldn't spend five minutes in a jail cell. Well, to interrupt you, actually, she has spent time in prison before for this. So you know, it's a series of DUIs, and then she probably did like six to nine months on one arrest. Yeah. Eventually, and that didn't dissuade her from carrying it on anymore. Uh, before I uh, before I uh, uh, let you go back off again, I'm going to tell you what she got. Um, so obviously the 17 and a half years she served something like 500 nod already uh, uh, with remand so that's all in the bank uh, she will serve an additional 8 years in probation including substance abuse and alcohol education orders, $10,000 fine this is the one I found funny 50 hours of community service <laughs> and uh, her driving license is gone for good now yeah. uh, did you see any specifically of the expert medical uh, witness testifying on Tammy's behalf. I did not. Well, here's the. Uh, it sort of becomes a bit comedy-like a bit. So the medical <laughs> expert says uh, the, the video is far too long to show to go through it. But to wrap it up, Tammy suffers from PTSD and probably CTE from all those concussions that 
she was never in matches for. Uh, and then <laughs> symptoms of bipolar disorder and various disassociative episodes, and of course, borderline personality disorder. Now, after the medical examiner who was brought in to uh, testify on Tammy's behalf is grilled by the prosecution, the prosecution basically says, How do you know all this? I mean, have you got any proof? And it's like, And then, oh, well, uh, Tammy filled in a questionnaire. Oh Jesus. So Jesus. so this guy had no knowledge of Tammy before this. So ninety minutes either face to face or reading the questionnaire this medical examiner had with Tammy. And then the prosecution said, Well, where are the MRIs and brain scans to prove the history of Tammy's physical issues, including uh, CTE or I mean you can't with CTE you can't definitively prove it, but you know, a history of uh, uh, head injuries and stuff. And uh, the medical guy couldn't provide anything incredible yeah so that's that's wild yeah. you know it's if you're ever if you've ever been in a courtroom at all uh both sides have done their homework supposedly and uh if you the fact that this guy would think that that, that was going to fly and that that was not going to be challenged i mean it's like you said it becomes almost like a comedy of errors at that point uh and I think then to the court in general, it just looks really bad. She filled out a questionnaire and, you, mm-hmm. you know, give this uh, uh, this sweeping medical diagnosis on. It's, it's uh, probably checkboxes of uh, disassociative uh, disorder sounds good, bipolar disorder. I mean, uh, not that she may not have some of these things. I question CTE. Right. Because, I yeah. mean, she may have been in a few, like, hair pull valet kind of matches, but how many? I remember seeing Sonny ever take a bump. Okay, not like Franny did, you know, no. not like Franny. I'm sorry, you know, like most of the cat fight stuff. Uh, I'm sure in her career because she did have a few matches, but you know, the CTE stuff I think is cumulative, long time, you know, night after night type of thing. You know, professional football players and and now wrestlers, boxers, were you know starting to find out. Uh, a few days prior to this happening, I had seen Tammy at WrestleCon. Maybe it was Russell Cade. She and Francine were there together, so I went over to say hello to him and, uh, and we spoke. Um, but we were, Franny and I were at WrestleCon in uh, uh, Dallas that year. And Franny kept you know, texting on the phone between fans. And I said, like, who talked to you? She said, Tammy. And I said, hey, look, be careful. You know, I said, because she's going to have to, like, yeah, I'd heard other stories and, and I just didn't want Franny getting like too close there and ended up getting yanked in. And uh, so she's going to end up killing somebody. And I said it like just like an off-the-cuff remark, never in my dreams hoping or believing that, that that would even be possible because of the girl that I had known. Uh, and she said, I just said that. And she held her phone up and Tammy had responded, I'll never let that happen. This is two or three or four days prior. So Franny, of course, texted me first. That was the first I heard of it. I was like, oh, my God, no, how? My understanding is this time she was making quite a bit of money, you know, doing the sex stuff on uh, online. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per month. So if you wanted tacos or I had heard that she was going looking for a boyfriend, uh, fill in that blank, whatever the reason, call an Uber, call a taxi, rent a limousine. Yeah, but you know, I'm sure if she could do it over now, 
like I always talk to my kids, like the, the moral for everybody listening out there is there are no do-overs. So you got to make sure you've got it right each time as much as you can. Uh, I, To be honest with you, I thought she got off light. I was expecting like 25 plus years. Mm. I don't know anything about the parameters. And, ah, and well, all. Let me tell you the parameters. So the uh, prosecution was recommending a maximum of, I think, somewhere around 27, maybe 27 and a bit. 27 and a half so she got about 10 years less than was possible so in well, that sense you should think herself lucky yeah well especially because again like when you know you're involved in this kind of any kind of case uh the first thing you do is go radio silent right <laughs> regardless of what's being said out there. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've got two quotes from Tammy Sitch after the let's call it the incident a fan asked her how fast we were going when you slammed into the poor old guy, stopped at a traffic light and killed him. His life ended for what reason? Were you on your way to a fire or drunk or high? And then Sitch responded about how fast? Hmm, about 10 miles per hour, which it was. Since I was <laughs> slowing down to a light, but the guy who she killed, Julian Lester, but he had a heart attack. And then she adds, nothing to do with my seizure. So she was claiming that she had a seizure behind the wheel and then somehow killed him at 10 miles an hour and then he had a heart attack. Yeah. And yeah. See, I, again, this is the stuff. If, you, if you're going to say this when you're under oath, anything you say, once you're on that stand, is open to cross-examination. Oh, no, no, no. That, well, that was on Facebook. That was public for all oh. to see. So, yeah, yeah, she was she was trying to lay the groundwork of a defense before she even saw the inside sure. of the courtroom there. Yeah, well, my understanding, too, is that... Uh, from a mutual friend that she was online a day or two after, like MFing people that were burying her online. I'm so glad you mentioned that. If anyone <laughs> says anything negative about me, you will be blocked and never unblocked. You don't know the real story, so don't act like you're some effing journalist when all you do is type from your mum's basement. Done. Now, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's like on cue. Uh, now, uh, one more thing I would like to bring up to you, to your attention, is did you see Tammy's plea to the judge before sentencing? I did not. Now, she mentioned a few amusing things here. Uh, that's very much spinning the uh, tale to her <laughs> thing. Now, uh, Tammy's statement was focused mostly on herself, her woe-is-me life. I mean, I, I'm sure I mentioned somewhere, it's like, them beautiful white women, they just have it so difficult, don't they? At all. <laughs> um <laughs> Everything's everybody else's fault, and most laughably of all, that somehow Chris Candido is to blame for her downward spiral by not only getting her out of medical school, apparently that was his fault, but then subsequently and selfishly dying in 2005. Now, Tammy also claimed that her life went off the rails in 2005, and not beforehand, uh, that she said in, in court, and... I mean, you know the story of Tammy. I mean, she was fired from the WWF in 98 for drugs, ECW in 1999. I, at least partially for drugs. I know she was suspended or something like that. And then WCW, I think she was let go for drugs as well. So she's completely yeah. changing the timeline to fit basically a yeah. real-life tragedy of Chris Candido to her benefit. Yeah, look, I, I guess we're in that position you got to try to throw whatever crap to the wall and see what sticks, right? Mm. It, it seemingly has worked in some degree because if they were looking for 27 years and she got 10 less. Uh, look, I, I, I say this all the time. I don't ever want to hurt myself in a car accident or anybody in the car with me, but I sure as hell even less want to hurt anybody else. 
And you know, in this day and age, I mean, it's just a, the world, I've, I've made a bazillion stupid mistakes in my life. Uh, thankfully, none of them ever hurt anybody else. You know, and I, I that's the part when you try to like allege that this guy had a heart attack or I had a seizure or whatever. Uh, again, best to, to just be sit back. I don't care what people are saying online. You're going to throw yourself on a sword at this point. And again, I'm sure if Tammy had the chance to do a do over, she would do it. Uh, unfortunately, there's no, that opportunity doesn't exist. And there's another human being dead because of it and other people injured because of just after all those other DUIs. Like you said, if that didn't teach you a lesson, well, you put me in a jail cell for five minutes, that would cure me of whatever, whatever you're yelling at me about. Uh, so it's just a tragedy all around. It's a tragedy this family will never uh, be able to undo. Uh, she will at some point, if it's 85%, I don't know how old Tammy is now, but she'll be near her 70s. And She's about 50 now, so if she gets out, she'd be, if she gets out, she'd be about 65 if she did the whole bid, 66, something like that. So, I mean, you know, the business has now gone behind. But I hope if Tammy hears this, I hope she hears what I'm saying with this. This is, you know, there are no do-overs, there's no time machines. We can't go back and undo stuff. But in whatever way she could turn this positive, uh, to go out there and speak to younger people about drinking and driving or today's smoking pot because it's legal so many places, being inebriated in any way and getting behind the wheel of a car. Uh, I always tell my kids, think of the worst thing that can happen and assume it will. And then do everything you can to avoid that. Uh, because, you know, like I, full disclosure, we were younger, drinking and driving. You know, in the business, we were always, you know, slapping a beer down or something in the car, never getting, you know, sloppy drunk or anything. But thank God we never had that kind of an incident. And, uh, you know, the world is where it is now. And we have to live in the world as it is today. So thank God that happened then and not now. And thank God we didn't hurt anybody. Uh, but it's, uh, I, I think this should be a morality tale for, for anybody out there because, you know, Tammy was literally at the upper echelons, right? I mean, you know, she was that first huge diva in the WWF, uh, you know, had, had just an unbelievably beautiful girl and a very intelligent girl. And what could have been from that, you know, you take all that DNA and throw it all in, in a blender, what could have been the outcome of that? And instead, uh, you know, yes, Chris Dye, I'm sure, had an impact on her. But, you know, there, there were things going on before that, that that were pretty questionable and pretty heady. Uh, I, but I, she didn't have a lot of time to think about it. So hopefully that brilliant young girl that I knew when I first met, hopefully she can figure out a way to take this and turn it into whatever kind of positive, hopefully keeping somebody else from going down that same avenue and having to endure the same uh, punishment and, and, you know, watch on your life and everything else. Uh, really just all the way around to really sad and completely avoidable uh, ending of a, of a freedom in your life. It's, a, it's about as bad as it gets. <laughs>